Welcome to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The debate you're about to hear is called What is the Future of the Union? with Justine Bryan as chair. So welcome to the What is the Future of the Union session. Um, this is the first uh, session today in a mini strand called Political Thinking. Um, I'm just going to set the scene for the discussion we're about to have, uh, uh, then introduce uh, panellists, uh, let you know who I am and why I'm here, and then we'll, we'll get going. Um, so uh, um, the result of the Scottish independence reference, uh, referendum back in September 2014, um, I'm sure many of you who are interested in this will know, gave a clear margin in favour of staying in the UK Uh, and in terms of Scottish independence that seemed at the time to put an end for the foreseeable future uh, to what then was considered the most significant threat to the future of the UK as it currently exists. It was described as a once in a generation vote, some of us have heard that before, uh, and there would be little to justify a rerun. But the result of the UK-wide referendum uh, uh, on the EU in 2016 seems to have not only reinvigorated the Scottish independence movement, uh, but raised multiple questions about the state of the union itself, whether it will, can, or should continue. In terms of Scottish independence, which is still kind of the the big thing on uh, on the horizon, uh, opinion polls, as ever, give mixed uh, opinions. Some suggesting there's a rise in support in the wake of Brexit for Scottish independence, whilst others suggest there's no popular mandate for a second referendum uh, on the issue. The SNP, as I'm sure some of you will know, won power in Hollywood in 2016, uh, won a majority, and when it did, it was calling for another vote if there was a significant and material change in the circumstances that prevailed in 2014. So that would be Brexit. It then lost that majority in 2017 in the election, um, uh, and and the country saw a completely unexpected resurgence in Conservative votes in Scotland. Uh, Many would argue in reaction to the SNP's insistence that it would rerun the Scottish independence referendum. Uh, And many people have argued that's why they lost their majority, because it isn't what people wanted. But that's in the past. Here we are now. Uh, Last month, the SNP's Nicola Sturgeon announced that she'd seek power from Westminster to hold another independence referendum in 2020. In July, Sinn Féin raised, in my memory, for the first time with any seriousness, the prospect of a cross-border poll on a united island in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And Plaid Cymru argued earlier this month that Brexit will do for Welsh nationalism what Thatcherism did for Scottish devolution in the 90s, exacerbate um, separatist tensions. So the question the panellists are going to look at today is, is the union weaker now uh, than at any time in its 312-year history? Is it in imminent danger of collapsing? And threats aside, more broadly, what's the positive case for the union? Why should, why should it exist? Why should it continue as it does? Is it just a convenient economic arrangement, or are there deeper and more meaningful things that bind us together? So these are quite big questions. I don't think they're very easy answers, um, but, but hopefully we can draw some of those ideas out today. So to discuss some of those questions and more, let me uh, introduce you to our panellists. Uh, coincidentally, it's, it's nice for my presentation, uh, the panel seems to be made up of the four home nations of the United Kingdom, so everyone's represented. Scotland seems to get two, two people, I'm not quite sure where that is, but they are obviously speaking as themselves, uh, not for the uh, na- uh, nation that they live in. Um, so let me quickly introduce you to them and who they are. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they speak. First of all, first of all uh, Akash Pound, Senior Fellow uh, at the... Institute for Government. He's an Associate Fellow at the Centre for Constitutional Change at, the, at Edinburgh University. 
Uh, and the Institute for Government produces just some brilliant documents and reports and research uh, on contemporary British politics. So if you haven't kind of checked out their website, you really, really should. Uh, after a cash will be Mev Brown. He, he, uh, was the, uh, he is the chief spokesman for SDP Scotland. He is the former spokesperson uh, for Business of Britain Scotland and was a campaigner with Better Together, uh, which some of you will know was the principal campaign for a no vote in the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. We have Dr. Ruth Dudley-Edwards, who is a journalist, historian, broadcaster, and award-winning author of a biography of the leader of the 1916 Easter Rising, Patrick Pearce, uh, The Triumph of Failure. We have Linda Murdoch next to me, campaigner for rights and democracy in Scotland, uh, as well as a director of careers uh, at the University of Glasgow. And uh, last on my list, but by no means least, Dr. Glyn Williams, who's an associate professor at the School of Business at the University of Leicester. Uh, I was very pleased to be asked to chair this session. Uh, by day, I'm a mild-mannered uh, charity director. Uh, and in the evening, uh, like many of you here, I am interested in politics and the world around me. And I, my, um, uh, I was particularly captured by the discussion around Scottish independence in 2014 and have continued to take an interest in that. So that is why I'm your chair. But that's enough about me because what's important is the speakers. So, speakers, you know you have a very short time, I'm afraid, to um, outline uh, your opening thoughts and statements. So without further ado, uh, Akash, over to you. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation to take part. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I've been a long-time uh, fan of the Battle of Ideas, but the first time I've been on this side of the table, so um, thank you for that. Um, so I think this is a, a really uh, topical discussion. We have the general election, of course, uh, in, in just over a month, at which um, not just Brexit, but a wider related set of constitutional questions um, in the various nations of the UK are going to be, I think, at the centre of the debate. Um, so really looking forward to what uh, the rest of the panel and everyone else in the room has to say about it. Um, so in my brief uh, remarks to kick off the discussion, I do want to focus on this question of how um, the EU referendum in 2016 um, and what has happened since then um, has affected um, and indeed destabilise the union, because I think it is, it is clear that the union is under serious and sustained pressure. And lots of the uh, issues that well, Justine's flagged and, and that we'll be talking about, of course, didn't suddenly emerge out of the, uh, out of the ether um, on June the 23rd, 2016. But I think the referendum um, has exposed and also exacerbated um, some cracks in the foundations of our uh, constitution or, and, and of the union. And specifically what it has shown us is that um, we do not have a shared understanding um, of some of the core principles um, of the union and, and of what it is that, uh, that holds the, the different parts of the UK together. Um, and, and I think, um, well, the way, I, the way I view it is that um, the union and devolution since 1999 have in, uh, contained uh, within their structures a set of uh, contradictory ideas about the constitution that have sort of peacefully coexisted up until now, but that Brexit has really um, exposed to the light and, and, and potentially set on a collision course with each other. So what do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, we have what you might see as the uh, orthodox Westminster idea of the Constitution, the idea that the UK is a unitary nation-state that can speak 
uh, can express its will uh, through a single vote, shall we say, of 52% uh, selecting to uh, or voting to, to leave the European Union, and that that is the only, um, the only score uh, from the June 2016 referendum that matters. And this, this viewpoint is, uh, was encapsulated quite neatly by Theresa May when she was Prime Minister, and she said, because we voted in the referendum as one United Kingdom, we will negotiate as one United Kingdom, and we will leave the EU as one United Kingdom. Now, I'm not here to say that viewpoint has no merit or that it's necessarily wrong, but the problem is that it is not an understanding of the union that is uniformly shared across all parts of the UK. And in particular, in Scotland, um, there is a very strong uh, counterpoint that because 62% of Scottish voters um, voted to remain, there is in fact no mandate for Scotland to be taken out of the EU, and certainly not on terms uh, that that do not have some degree of consent from, from, from the people of Scotland or from the Scottish Parliament. And that, I would say, as an aside, is not just an SNP position. Uh, the, the SNP strategy relating to Brexit has actually, for most of the time, had the support of, of other parties in the Scottish Parliament, including Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Um, and what there is there is an appeal to a much deeper rooted idea that Scotland is not just a devolved region within the United Kingdom, but a sovereign nation with the right of self-determination. And that's the thing that's come into, uh, into collision course with, as I say, the Westminster Orthodox view. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Briefly on Wales, Wales did, of course, vote uh, narrowly to, uh, to leave, but there too there's been an appeal to this alternative idea that um, the union is best understood today as a voluntary partnership of, of four sovereign nations that may decide to pool some of their sovereignty together, um, but um, are not simply regions governed by a single sovereign parliament at Westminster that can unilaterally take decisions about the constitution of the whole United Kingdom. Um, so things have become... Uh, destabilised in Wales too for, for, for somewhat similar reasons. In uh, Northern Ireland is a rather different um, set of issues. So what we see there, of course, is that the Good Friday Agreement and the, the, the devolution settlement that was created after that power sharing between the two communities um, created a system whereby Northern Ireland and its citizens could hold the dual identities simultaneously of Britishness and Irishness. And the entire structure of power sharing in Northern Ireland rested on that. And Brexit has really started to destabilise that. A border on the island of Ireland is a challenge to the Irishness of the North. A border down the Irish Sea, conversely, is seen as a threat to the Britishness of the North. Um, I know I'm about to be red-carded. Uh, <laughs> before, before that happens, um, I just quickly wanted to say uh, a word about England. And it was, of course, England that um, really, despite the, well, the name Brexit, with, the, with, the, with the, obviously the BR from Britain in it, the, uh, the, the, the rhetoric of taking back control to the United Kingdom Parliament and so on, Brexit was, in large part, a product of English politics. It was English voters that delivered the victory, predominantly, uh, for Brexit. 
when you look into the data, it was overwhelmingly um, voters who identify as English rather than British in parts of England outside London who were most likely to vote for Brexit. Voters who think that also England gets a raw deal at present out of its membership of the two unions, in fact. So Brexit, in my interpretation, was a yeah, reflection of English frustration and a cry for um, English self-determination to be recognised. So I better call it to a halt there. But in terms of the future of the union, I think yeah, Brexit has uh, destabilised uh, the, the already somewhat fragile settlement. I don't think it's a given that it's going to collapse. I think if it is going to survive, though, it will be, have to be uh, it will have to be uh, reformulated on on different principles that accept this idea of the self determination of each of the component nations of the UK. Cash, thank you very much. Okay, we're going to turn now to to Mev Brown. Mev, you must be slightly depressed because you were on the winning side in 2014 and here we are a few <laughs> years later having the same discussion. So o- over to you. Thanks. Uh, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Mev Brown. Um, as I mentioned earlier I was the chief spokesman for Business for Britain during the EU referendum and I was a campaigner for Better Together during the independence referendum in 2014. Um, I've been active in politics for 15 years and writing about it for almost as long and I think one of the things I bring to the, the table or the debate is a street level perspective I'm talking to people. I love talking to anybody about politics. It doesn't matter if you're in a bus stop or at work or whatever. Um, one of the things, I do have some real fears for the future of the union, uh, but my main fear, or my main concern, is the quality and the level of the debate. Um, it is, I, I mean, I'm just horrified at the, the quality of the debate. I think for most people, if you accuse politicians of being detached from reality, living in a bubble and not being able to connect with voters in a, in a meaningful way, most people say, yeah, that's probably a fair comment. In Scotland, one of the big issues is the SNP. Uh, in 2015, they won 56 out of 59 seats in the general election. If you were to do that at a UK level, that would mean 100 and, sorry, 617 MPs out of 650. The SNP are formidable opponents politically. Their main strength is their ability to argue emotional debates, not technical debates. The unionists are quite good at technical stuff. Nicola Sturgeon is brilliant at the emotional arguments, and she just destroys the unionists every single time, and that's a real concern. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably the first big concern I've got. You know, certainly when you look at Indiref, um, the SNP's main arguments were emotional. The biggest issue in the campaign was the Scottish currency debate. The SNP put out a, a white paper, 600-plus pages of uh, a white paper. One of the key points was a Scottish currency, sorry, a Scotland having a, a currency union with the UK after independence. George Osborne and all the Better Together campaigners said it wasn't going to happen, and Alex Salmond said, well, you're bluffing. In, a, in an instant, he'd reduced the level of debate in Scotland to that of a poker game, and he got away with it for two years. I, I, I found it absolutely remarkable. If you look at the, um, the debates on the issue from the time, the technical arguments George Osborne and Alistair Darling gave were technically correct. One of the problems was nobody understood a word they were saying, and that allowed Alex Salmond to just continue with his bluffing line for two years. Um, politically, it was a remarkable achievement, and it was certainly a big failure in the Better Together campaign. Um, 
so and again it just it highlights the power of the SNP's emotional arguments I did do a poll uh, in 2017 uh, it came up in a private conversation and I, you know, I was doing some polling at the time and I did poll a question 75% of British voters knew there wouldn't be a currency union within independent Scotland and the rest of the UK if Scotland voted for independence the only people in the UK that thought it would be was SNP voters uh, remarkable um, and now of course we have Brexit as the main driver for India F2 uh, apparently we're going to be dragged out of the Union, the European Union against the will um, now I did some polling on that point again um, again one of my concerns is the quality of the debate to me the two biggest benefits of Brexit were not articulated during the EU referendum specifically and many will remember Gordon Brown's uh, a slow, um, campaign speech in the 2007 uh, Labour Party conference, British Jobs for British Workers. I, post, I, I polled that question, and the results are quite surprising. 50% of Labour voters would back Brexit if there was a British Jobs for British Workers policy. 52% of Lib Dems backed it. 55% of SNP voters back it. And surprisingly, overall, 61% of Scottish voters back a British Jobs for British Workers policy. When you look at uh, a British Homes for British Citizens policy, in that, at the moment, uh, EU citizens have the same access and the same rights to social housing as British citizens. If we leave, well, when we leave the EU, that changes. So British citizens will get priority. Again, you get very similar uh, polling results. Britain, sorry, Brexit is not dividing the society. Politicians are. And my main concern is that the Brexit campaigners are not articulating the benefits of Brexit to the public for, for reasons that are totally beyond me. Uh, and certainly during the G general election, that's something I certainly hope to address in the, in the campaign. In the more wider context, what, one question I did poll was Iraq. Um, if you talk to most people on the doorstep, some of the biggest issues um, are law and order, education, and the NHS. But what I found is if you ask people on the doorstep about Iraq, it's, it was a big influencer more or less at a subconscious level in Scotland about the voting intention. So I pulled the question on Iraq. 47% of SNP voters are less likely to vote Labour because of the Iraq war. That is the reason the Labour Party supports collapse in Scotland. That is the reason. And they've gone to the SNP. Um, so Iraq is actually a major driver for Scottish independence. But again, when you look at the benefits of Brexit, that still prevails. Uh, in terms of British jobs, British workers, and British jobs, British citizens. So, certainly in the general election campaign, um, you know, I'm hoping to raise some of the big issues for the first time. Uh, you know, I'm a passionate unionist, I'm a passionate Brexiteer, and I think we really need to have a game. We need to be able to match wits with the SNP, on, not only on the technical issues, but also on the emotional arguments. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Thanks. I come from, um, I'm, I'm a hybrid. I was born in the south of Ireland, in Dublin, from a, in a Catholic nationalist tribe, but I think one could say I, domestically, it was rather sceptical. Um, I fled Ireland for England, which I loved from literature, and because it appeared to have free speech, which was not at the time available in Ireland, because our independence had brought us um, the rule of Rome, 
<coughs> Rome ruled, the Catholic Church ruled, and so did a narrow version of nationalism. The people we revered were the revolutionaries. That's what we were told. I didn't like any of it. And um, I became, I suppose you could say, rather English. Um, I left it when I was 21. Until the troubles really got going and I felt I couldn't walk away, as it were. Because I was an historian of Irish republicanism, among other things. And I began to get involved in the whole Northern Irish debate. Now, all I knew as somebody from the South about Northern Ireland was that unionists were truculent and difficult. Nothing changes. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and that really nobody wanted to know anything about Northern Ireland. Anything. They didn't really like the nationalists either. And, of course, when the trouble started, they became more and more distanced. So partition, which happened in 21, um, has absolutely become total partition of minds, which has been exacerbated by the troubles. And I became involved as a journalist in fighting against uh, what Mev has so well talked about, the emotional argument of nationalism, but also fighting terrorism. Because there was this quaint notion in Ireland that one day we would have our 32 counties by forcing the unionists into it. One day they would just give up, which proves they didn't know them at all. Because one thing about Ulster Protestants, or of course terribly Scots, is that they never give up on certain things. And when they know they're in the right, they are dogged, they are brave, they are stoical, they're all those things. And I became very fond of unionists, absolutely. Which caused me to be essentially expelled from my own tribe. It's not easy uh, trying to see the point of view of anyone else. You try to uh, build bridges and your own side blows them up, essentially. But what Mev was talking about there is utterly crucial. In, in Ireland, in, in Northern Ireland, apart from the violence, which got nowhere with unionists, just got nowhere, but certainly did get somewhere with the English. With the English. Tony Blair, um, I have a lot of problems with what he did in Northern Ireland including encouraging the extremes at the expense of the centre. He helped to destroy the centre. He thought that the great prize was Ian Paisley and Gerry Adams smiling at each other. The trouble is, what he did was to help install two tribes who hate each other, utterly, absolutely hate each other, and cannot possibly work together. Not least because um, the DUP wished to maintain the union and, the, and Sinn Féin wished to destroy the union. So how do you work together as a pair? There is no trust. When you have a position that the leader of the Unionist Party, uh, Arlene Foster, was eight years old when she saw her father crawling into the kitchen with blood pouring down his face because he had been shot by an A-terrorist who just missed killing him. When you know that Arlene Foster then, when that particular terrorist who was never charged because there wasn't enough evidence, when he was finally shot by the NAS, SAS, Martin McGuinness, with whom she later had to share power, was, gave the eulogy of the graveyard about him as a freedom fighter. You know, how do you expect, how do we expect these people just to forget bygones be bygones? Sinn Féin organized parades every week to eulogize terrorists. That's where we are in Northern Ireland. Um, Brexit was argued utterly emotionally. Um, the nationalist tribe, just like in Scotland, superb superbly emotional, superb propaganda. Unionists, not. Did the DUP make the case for Brexit? No. Are they capable of making the case for anything? Not as far as I can see. Do I like unionists? Yes. 
have they become essentially my tribe in Northern Ireland? Yes, because I cannot believe what they put up with for all those years in terms of violence to themselves and their families and their friends, all those murders, and that they didn't actually themselves become involved in a civil war because they do care about law and order. Um, They do actually uh, object to killing people. They are um, brave people. What drove Brexit? Well, sovereignty. I mean, you mentioned that, Akash. Sovereignty is the key. What I cannot get through to my Irish friends is that the English now want sovereignty. They want their sovereignty back. And why is it okay for the Irish to go on about nationalism? And the Irish now have decided they're happy to pool their sovereignty. But the English are moving in the other direction, seems to me a reasonable position. So I'm a Brexiteer. Um, <clears throat> I was a reluctant one in some ways because I worried for Ireland. But I think the EU has passed its useful time and because it will not reform. I think the United Kingdom, as has been suggested down there, badly needs reform. Something's got to be done about the complete imbalance that we have. Rather, as the EU should have done something about Germany dominating everything. You know, it isn't working if everybody hates England because there's so many of them. And the English are not against the Union, but they are sick and tired of being insulted and abused and picking up the tab all the time and getting no tap, no thanks for it. So that's where we are. In my view, we have a mighty problem. Uh, I hope Brexit gets through. But uh, having said that, I, there is work being done, and Akash will know about this. Lord Salisbury has a group looking at the possibilities of a complete reworking of the whole British constitution. And I think it has to be done. And something has to be done for English nationalism now. But all the other nationalisms are encouraged. And I think we'll get there because I think the roots are very, very strong. And one more argument, which is that having seen how difficult Brexit has proved to be, how extraordinarily difficult anybody who's thinking at all knows it would be a hellish several years trying to disentangle Scotland or Wales from the United Kingdom. Um, and the Southern Irish are suddenly realising that it would be absolute hell trying to, to bring Northern Ireland into a united Ireland. Um, and they're terrified of it. And they're beginning to talk about it all. To, you know, will we have to change our constitution? What will we do about 900,000 people who don't want to be in there and are going to be sullen and difficult and unionist? What are we going to do if Republican terrorism is replaced by loyalist terrorism? What the hell are we going to do? Well, i tell you what they've stopped doing. They've stopped saying, yes, let's have a united Ireland. Wouldn't that be wonderful? They've stopped saying that. So I don't think for a moment that it would pass in the South, even if it passed in the North. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, Linda, over to you. The national sovereignty expressed in Brexit is very, very different from the national sovereignty that uh, the SNP are trying to tell us that they express. I think it's really important to see that distinction. Sovereignty means uh, absolute power, authority. We, the demos, exercise um, that power through the ballot box, and it's reaffirmed through the ballot box, and it was in Brexit. The kind of self-determination, sovereignty, that uh, Nicola Sturgeon is talking about uh, for the SNP is very, very different. Um, What she is looking for is a desire for recognition by the EU for her 
politicians, for the politicians in the SNP. So she has said that because Scotland voted um, to stay in the EU, then that equates uh, for independence from the rest of the UK. Um, and for that reason, she's going to fight the election uh, to bring forward yet another um, referendum. What she's talking about is very different from the real struggles of, uh, for sovereignty. If you, if you look about the national, nationalist battles of, of, of 1848 to the anti-colonial struggles of the 20th century, these have traditionally been a vehicle through which a population as a whole has achieved democracy and national sovereignty. And this relies on a collective body of people that can refer to itself as we. The US Constitution refers to we, the people. National elections are run on the questions of what we want. The SNP is only really interested in the cry of we being recognised. They do not want any we to actually exercise power. Instead, they would transfer many of a, of a new nation's powers and decision-making processes given them by the we as um, to the various bodies in, in Brussels. And as we have seen, that insulates them, um, they, they, uh, insulates the elites from us, um, the people. Now, the SNP uh, will admit, has admitted to mention that far fewer Scots voted in the EU referendum than in the independent referendum. Um, in the EU referendum, the, the turnout in Scotland was 67% compared to 85% in the 2014 um, uh, 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 Scottish independence um, referendum. This means that while 1.6 million Scots voted to stay in the EU, over 2 million voted to stay in the UK two years earlier. Um, the SNP said that that 1.6 million wipes out 2 million. No, it doesn't. Um, there have been 82 polls since 2014 in Scotland on independence and only 12 of them have shown that 45% uh, for leaving the UK going up. Um, all the other ones have been below 45%. Poll came out last week, 25%. Um, so this idea that the Scottish people, that the, the SNP uh, represents the Scottish people is just not true. Um, they are not formidable, believe me. Support for independence in Scotland today is no higher than it was at the time of the Yes No referendum, and it has not grown, um, categorically has not grown. If the SNP was truly a national party vying for national identity, it would try to unify Scotland around a vision for a future Scotland. Has it done that? No, it hasn't. Um, for example, not one effort has been made by the SNP to engage the one million Scots who voted to leave the, uh, the EU, including 36% of their own members. 36% of SNP members voted to leave the EU. doesn't sound like formidable to me. Nicola Sturgeon uh, spends all her time vilifying that one, that one million through, her, uh, through a proxy uh, by attacking the English Tories as xenophobic and right-wing. So instead of trying to unify uh, the people of Scotland who voted leave through a, a vision of future Scotland, um, she vilifies us um, and basically says we're right-wing and ignores us. Look at the policies 
These are real evidence of um, a, a, an elite who are uh, who disdain the people, ordinary people. Um, the most notorious of which is the Name Person um, Act, uh, introduced in 2014, despite in 2016 being thrown out by the Supreme Court as a breach of European Convention of Human Rights. The SNP persisted in pushing, pushing this and said they were going to find a way to enact it in, in Scotland. Um, it's all, it was only dropped two months ago. And even now, the SNP tells local authorities to run their own many-name-person policy, um, which some of them do, and they're now beginning to question the efficacy of these um, through the courts. Minimum pricing alcohol in May 2018, Scotland became the first country in the world to introduce a national minimum pricing policy, setting a limit of 50p uh, uh, below which you cannot sell alcohol. Now, despite huge reports um, in, in Scotland saying that this was not going to help Scotland's chronic alcohol problem, it was introduced anyway. So it's really just an attack on the poor. It just makes the poor more miserable, basically. Offensive behaviours at football and threatening communications introduced in 2012. Huge opposition, grassroots um, uh, football, football fans, fans against criminalisation. The, the, the actual act was attacking um, young men singing silly songs at football matches. Um, and they could, they could be criminalised often on the subjective word of a police officer. This was repealed in 2017 because of a grassroots campaign against it by ordinary, ordinary football fans. And uh, the smacking ban came in last month. Scotland is the first country in Europe to criminalise parents for mildly smacking their, their, their children. There, is there are already laws against beating children. Um, and it is, a, it is just complete contempt for, for parents. Um, this is one of a long list um, which demonstrates that we Scots, we live in the most authoritarian part of the UK. I kid you not. The SNP has introduced these policies which shows their utter disdain for ordinary people. Um, by vying to break up the union and stay in the EU, their wish is to further insulate themselves from us, and that's why the fight for democracy itself is synonymous with the fight, is synonymous with the fight for the union. But to go back to what I said at the start, democracy means demos for the people and classy for power. SNP calling to secede is not that. It is the demand of an elite who wish to insulate themselves from us. It must be resisted. Our job is to convince Scots to stay with the people and with the rest of the UK. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, um, I'm Welsh. I'm 100% um, um, depressed by the, um, the apparent rise of nationalism in Wales, but I have to concede at the outset that the, the, the small rise of nationalism that's happened so far is a, is a logical response to the failure of Tory government in London and Labour government in Wales. So I don't write it off as some kind of hysterical sort of um, emotional sort of um, uh, 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 happening. It's, it, there is a logic, okay? But let, I want to go back to, to examine that logic. Let's just go back to 2016. Wales, as you probably remember, voted, to, uh, voted for Brexit by a marginally higher majority than the average for the United Kingdom, 523 
Um, in some areas of South Wales, there, there were stonking majorities. Uh, Blaenau Gwent, 62%. Um, so the, 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 there wasn't really any doubt about that vote. Yet within, uh, after the European election, um, after the, the European Parliament elections, within hours of that vote, um, the media were, were purporting that Wales was now a Remain nation on the basis that the so-called Remain parties had gained a majority of votes. Remain parties, incidentally, included the Labour Party, whose manifesto then and still now says that they will respect the referendum result. Okay? So it's a slightly strange calculation in, 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 the, in the first place. So Plaid Cymru has tried to capitalise on this and, and, and claim that it, its own support now is, is, is driven by... Um, a pro-European dynamic within Wales. I mean, the idea that people are revolting against themselves, <laughs> they're revolting against the way that they themselves voted three years previously seems quite bonkers to me. Okay? Um, so th that is not the case. You know, the, 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 the nationalist vote in Wales, as I, I, I know less about other parts of the UK, but I think there too, it's a response to the effect. This, this is a homegrown problem. This is a, a response to the failure, or not just of national government, but of devolved government as well. But um, it's strange, isn't it, how nationalism is now respectable in this sense, and everyone's in favour of the nation-state, as long as it's not the United Kingdom, that is. Okay? So there's... Um, Oh, and, and the nationalist parties are now is widely accepted. The nationalist parties, Plaid Cymru, for instance, is a party of the left, is a progressive party. And indeed, some of their policies would purport to be that in the way of all chameleon parties. Um, but so, this is a bit odd because the left in this country, the kind of liberal left, uh, over the past 30 years has convinced itself that um, globalization is the only game in town and that the nation state is a relatively powerless entity you know it's powerless on the world stage and it's too big to deal with domestic matters so there's, there's a, there appears to be a kind of contradiction that, that we have this kind of newfound um, respectability of nations and nationalism and at the same time um, a, um, a, a, the left kind of preaching Tina, there is no alternative like, like the Tories did in the 1980s in fact of course these are two sides of the same coin right? because this is a very, both of these are very fatalistic and depressingly pessimistic agendas I think right? because what nationalists um, are arguing for when they talk for independence isn't really independence at all right? it's separatism of a kind but it's actually a kind of glorified um, local government within the European Union right? um, and certainly that's what Plaid Cymru is, they, they, they abandoned the word independence briefly back in the, in the 1990s and have rediscovered it now because they, they've appended it to independence within Europe okay. now um, I was going to say at the start of this, I've kind of contradicted myself, I'm fairly agnostic about, the, um, about where national boundaries are, are, are drawn, and I'm agnostic about some of the technical questions as to whether, you know, whether um, particular nation states could work or not, because of course they could work, any, any, any uh, geographical entity can work as a nation state. Malta, you know, um, population about the same as um, Leicestershire or Cornwall, 
it kind of works as a nation state, doesn't it? I mean, albeit with vast European subsidies and a fair dose of money laundering, it, it, it works, you know? Now, if you ask the average Maltese what they've done with their sovereignty, they'll say, well, we built a load of casinos. But, um, you know, but still, it kind of works, okay? So the, the technical arguments, I think, are rather tedious and, and, and kind of pointless, really. I mean, there, there are also these emotional arguments we've heard of, and they're the ones that scare me. And, and these apply to um, the European Union as well as to you know, uh, intra-UK nationalism. Uh, a, a Lib Dem MP, Leila Moran, was interviewed recently, and she said that the European Union isn't a matter of rights and passports. It's a matter of what we feel in our hearts. I mean, that's a, that's a nationalistic argument, and it scares me. Okay? So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm diverging a little bit. But let's, let's come back to the, the, the point. I, the reason I say I'm agnostic is because, of course, the UK doesn't have a right to exist. We hear this, this expression a lot applied to countries like Israel. I mean, the, the states don't have a right to exist because states are not people. People have rights. People have the right to decide to draw national boundaries where they see fit. The Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, didn't have the right to exist. Neither does the UK. But ask yourself, does that same argument apply to the future possible states of, of a United Ireland, Scotland, and Wales? Right? And you come to probably different conclusions when you see the way that the nationalist argument is, is, is used. So we talk about self-determination. But what is this self that has the right to self-determine? Well, it's the nation. What is a nation? Well, the people decide what a nation is. And who are the people? Well, the people are the people who live in a nation. <laughs> okay? So in the future, yeah, let's take Ireland. I mean, I quite agree. Obviously, the, the Irish independence... Um, stem from the overwhelming um, mandate of the Irish people. But once you've, dis once you've accepted that democratic logic, it's then very difficult to deny it to the people of the north of Ireland. Right? In Wales, if Wales, God forbid, ever voted for independence from the UK, um, what happens if Monmouthshire, Pembrokeshire, decide they don't want to go that way? Okay? Does the same argument apply to them? No, because Wales is a nation. It just is a nation, we are asked to believe. Monmouthshire is not a nation, so it doesn't get to decide. Okay? Nation states get to decide, and nation states, by definition, simply exist. The argument for me isn't one of emotional um, kind of uh, pull or, or of the technical arguments. Could this work? Would we be marginally better off or worse off? Um, the argument for me is one of democratic control, does any particular configuration of national boundaries give us more or less control over our lives? And if you think of Tony Benton's famous, um, famous questions to the powerful, you know, what power have you got? Who's, whose uh, interest do you exercise it in? And how do we get rid of you? you know? Are we more, do we have more power expressed in those terms in, devolved, in, in independent uh, national states or not? And I've never heard a convincing argument for independence based on those arguments, okay? Because that's not the way that these people are thinking, okay? I mean, we hear arguments, as we did with devolution, about bringing government closer to the people. But you know, the, the problem was never one of like, geographical distance in the first place, was it? Yeah? So, I mean, there's people probably a mile or two from here who think that Westminster might as well be on Ben Becula for all their concern, for all the bloody good it is to them, right? And similarly... You know, bringing um, independent 
Wales, seated in Cardiff, I mean, government doesn't become more accessible and more responsive just because it's travelled a few miles down the M4. Okay? Um, if I was living, if an unemployed person in my steg or a pensioner in, in, in Merthyr Tydfil, are they more or less able to call their assembly member to account than their, um, that, than their member of parliament? I, I don't know, but I suspect it's not, there's not much between them. I just, want to, I just want to say a couple of things about what the real problems are. I was born in the Rhondda Valley, um, you know, the, the most famous coal-producing area in the world at the time. Um, now, to be fair, you wouldn't have liked it, okay? I mean, I'm not going to sell it that hard to you, but, but, but it was a thriving place. I don't just mean economically, I mean culturally. I mean, people really did, family members really were playing in brass bands, singing in choirs, praying in chapels. If you were in work, you were in a union, and most people were in work. That's the crucial thing, okay? So there was um, something was going on there, okay? That's gone. That's gone, right? When I walk around the valleys these days, the depression and the hopelessness is, is palpable. You see kids who've given up before they've even bloody left school. Right? I don't want to exaggerate, but I find it horrible. Okay? Now, those are real problems. I mean, frankly, we're not far from a kind of gilet jaune moment in Wales if we, people had, had the energy to do it. Right? It needs intervention. It needs investment. It does not need... Uh, playing around with national borders and, and setting up duplicate governments in Wales. Thank you. We'll take a little cluster of questions. So, points, disagreements, uh, anyone from Malta offended by Glyn? Uh, I'll give you an opportunity to speak. Um, you talked, someone talked about the um, emotional arguments of the, of the nationalist parties in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, how they work and how um, the unionists don't really use those emotional arguments for the union. I think that the need for the emotional arguments in the union are as important in England as they are in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, to ensure that they can help. OK, thank you. That, that, that could apply to a number of speakers, because quite a few spoke about emotionalism. Um, so chat there, yeah, uh, with the specs on. Yeah. Yeah, I also wanted to take a look at this issue of uh, emotional appeal and why unionism might um, lack emotional appeal. Um, last December, Billy Connolly did a couple of programmes called Made in Scotland, and he was uh, eulogising his experience of being Glaswegian, and he was celebrating working class Glaswegian um, culture. What was interesting, he was very keen to link his Glaswegian working class experience with Liverpool, with Cardiff, with the East End of London. And, and that you know, came across as a very sort of emotional appeal uh, of. Um, if you like, sort of solidarity with other people within the United Kingdom. They saw, uh, he, he was arguing that the Liverpoolians, um, Welsh, East End of London are our brothers in terms of working class solidarity. So, my question is um, if we look at the SNP's support, it has gained a lot of traction amongst working class voters. Um, I don't quite I'm not fully convinced it's a reaction against Labour because the SNP are even more new Labour than Blair ever was. I mean, they're, they're, they're a very odd political party in the sense they're a national, Scottish national party that hates the Scottish people, as far as I'm concerned. So the question, panel, um, why is this sort of tartan biscuit type of Scottish nationalism, which I've also written that, but that type of Scottish nationalism 
Why is it gained traction with Glasgow and Northern Glass? Because in terms of the referendum, the Scottish referendum, there was a higher percentage uh, of people voting for independence in Glasgow. In the UK, when it came to the EU referendum, that identity politics is associated with middle classes. So, what is it about the current form of Scottish nationalism that has appealed uh, to working class Scots? But in the past, they've had that Billy Connolly sense uh, <coughs> of, you know, our brothers are actually safe and poor. Thank you. If we can pass the microphone to the other chap with respect. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'd like to, this is kind of, on the panel, there's a kind of sense of talk about nationalism. Clive uh, Cymru, the rise of nationalism in Wales, the SNP, the rise of nationalism in Scotland, the, the return of republicanism, or a, a form of kind of vibrant republicanism in, in Ireland. And I'm kind of, I find myself in a bit of a, a kind of crossroads in the sense that somebody politically who kind of might have been against the union because of its input, to use an old word, imperialist domination or kind of domination of other peoples. But it seems to me that if you're a proper nationalist, if you were a proper Scots nationalist, you would defend the union because the union is the precondition for gaining self determination and national sovereignty. Scotland can only be a sovereign state outside of the European Union. So a precondition for Scottish nationalism, proper nationalism, which is what those 38% of SNP members recognise because they're an old cohort, they're a properly political cohort of the SNP. You know, kind of, nationalism has been turned into this kind of cultural identities carnival, really. Real nationalists have to defend the sanctity of the British Union, because that is a precondition for Ireland, <coughs> Wales, Scotland, Cornwall, Montgomeryshire, making a claim to proper, self-determined, sovereign um, I think the question about what is a nation and, and um, how, how we can use it to our benefit is, real, is really important. Um, like um, Ruth, I'm Irish by birth. I grew up in Northern Ireland, came to Manchester at the age of 18. Um, um, <laughs> all my siblings have left Ireland. I have a brother in Scotland. Um, most of my family think I've um, gone native in England because I, I, I completely... Um, support the um, idea of national independence from the EU and that is the only way we can get um, control as the working class and, and plan our future and improve the lives of everyone who lives here wherever they were born. Um, uh, sorry, that was the one point. Totally um, endorse what was just said there. It is bizarre how few people seem to get that English people or people from the UK who are demanding national independence are just as justified as any other country doing that. And it is a struggle. And we have our own um, um, ruling class, for want of a better word, the elite, to deal with in that as well. No nation has ever found independence easily. It is going to be a struggle. Um, and we need to know who our allies are 
even if it's temporary, and work with each other, and who is trying to stop that from happening and isolate them as well. Um, sorry, I'm going on and on and on. There was one other point. I think it was valuable, but no, it's gone. Okay. Sorry. We, we'll come back out again. I'll take one more question before we come back to the panel. So keep your hands up. So the lady there at the end of the row. Yeah. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, the question um, that's posed here is, what's the future of the union with a capital U? What do you think of the idea of the union with a small U, as proposed by the Constitutional Reform Group and our new active union bill, um, which is a cross-party group of politicians campaigning for a new active union? And what do you think about the idea of, you know, we're talking about Welsh nationalism, we're talking about Scottish nationalism. What about the English and their role within the union? And do you think that there would be a possibility in future of an English parliament or regional devolution? Obviously, this was something that was picked up years ago when they had a referendum. But do you think there's been a shift because of Brexit? Thank you very much. Audience, I will come back out for more questions, but I think that's quite a lot for the panel to, to chew on. So, panellists, you can't possibly respond to all questions before you. If I could just ask you to think about something you'd particularly like to come back on because it's, it's important to you. Um, Mev, just because I'm staring at you, do, do, should we kick off with you? Have you? Has anything been said from the floor you'd like to come back on? Um, yeah, I guess one point. Uh, again, going back to the, uh, the issue of um, an independent Scotland in the European Union, as advocated by Nicola Sturgeon, <coughs> if you go back to the independence referendum in 2014, the SNP basically did not want to set up a central bank. It's as simple as that. Um, now that. That was why they were strongly campaigning for a currency union. They didn't want the hassle and the responsibility of setting a central bank. And they know that the Scottish voters will not, they will not tolerate the euro. I've done polls on that. It's about 80% are against the euro. So if, if, if they see that the price for joining the European Union is the euro, forget it. It's a game over. Um, there are many responsibilities uh, associated with the central bank, and basically, from the way I look at it, Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Hammond have all the fun for independence and none of the responsibilities. Um, it, when it comes to again, if you go back to the, the the basics, a lot of it goes back to the 2008 financial crisis. A lot of working class people are still feeling the impacts of that. I mean, I, I've worked in the home sector. I've had one pay rise in 12 years, and that's quite common in the public sector and, and the charity sector in Scotland. Uh, and that started as soon as SNP took office, and yet they referred to it as Tory cuts. They started cuts in 2007, long before the Tory, three years before the Tory government came into office. So again, it's just how Nicholas Sturt, I mean, in fact, to, you know, to expand on another point that was made, um, you know, when I campaigned for Britain leaving the European Union, I'm a frothing at the mouth right-wing extremist. When Nicola Sturgeon campaigns for Scotland to leave the UK, she's a national hero campaigning as a, as a champion of the Scottish people. And it's like, oh, give me a break, you know. It's, it's just, it's, it's, you know, she is an emotional, emotionally she's an intellectual genius. And the unionists don't have a, a, an equal. Uh, I mean, I've been talking to a lot of friends and colleagues um, uh, in other parties. You know, who's going to lead the the unionist argument in, in DRF2, and there's no answers. I mean, Gordon Brown, uh, Alistair Dowling said they're not interested. So who's left? I mean, Nicholas, uh, sorry, Ruth Davidson's dropped out, uh, and I think the reason for that is because she was as passionate about the European Union as Nicholas Sturgeon was. So how could she, if she agrees with Nicholas Sturgeon on everything pro-Europe, how can you possibly lead you know, the unionist campaign? So I think the unionists have got a real problems in Scotland in terms of leadership. Um, but in terms of the actual arguments... It shouldn't even be part of the conversation. I mean, okay. <laughs> thanks, man. 
Okay. Uh, Cash, would you like to? Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a couple of couple of points I'd, I'd uh, respond to. So the, uh, the lady there from the working with the Constitution Reform Group. That's the Lord Salisbury Group that uh, Ruth mentioned earlier. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've seen the Act of Union uh, bill that was was proposed by the group in the last Parliament, and I mean, it's quite it's got a lot of quite complex provisions, not all of which I agree with. But what I, what I do agree with is there is the core idea proposed by that group that, in line with what I think I was arguing earlier on, we need to rethink the union as a, a partnership of, of, of four nations, each of which does have the right to determine its own form of government. Um, and as far as England is concerned, that means that, yes... I do think that we do need to recognise English nationhood within the, the wider structure of the Union state. Um, and there's a, at the moment um, a kind of strange squeamishness you often perceive at Westminster and among the main sort of unionist political parties who are almost allergic to using the word England, even when they're you know, talking about the NHS or schools or, 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 or other policy areas that are um, that are fully devolved to the other nations. So, you know, if the government makes a, a, a proposal about schools reform, they are only talking about England, but they will use the language of um, our nation or the country and, 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 and rather than talking about Englishness. I don't think that's very healthy um, or, very, or, or, or necessary. Um, but does that mean that England needs its own parliament? Well, I, I'm not actually convinced that it does. I think if the people of England uh, rally behind uh, that cause, and and there's you know opinion polls and political parties uh, with winning support on on the basis of uh, setting up an English parliament and maybe moving towards something more like a, a federal UK, then yes, that would be a legitimate. Um, aspiration in that context, but I don't think there is support for that because for most English people Westminster is England's parliament and it has been that for a thousand years since before there was a United Kingdom um, and you know, 85% of MPs are English and it's quite hard to look at what happens at Westminster and to conclude that it's England's interests that are getting overlooked I mean, as I said before, the whole reason Brexit is taking place is because of English political calculations. So I don't think we're actually at that point. Maybe we'll get there in due course. Um, I think there's a separate argument and a good one for devolution within England. So I think England is very um, over-centralised. And I think, contrary to what Glyn said, it does matter. Uh, it does produce better government and, and policy decisions that reflect local needs and gain the trust of people when you have government and decision-making closer to the people. Um, but that isn't really an answer to the, to the question about England's place in the union. That's really about good governance. Okay. Um, uh, thank you, Akash. I should have said to the speakers, if you've, uh, and Akash kicked off, if you've heard another speaker say anything you'd like to challenge, do so. I mean, the issue of uh, some people better at tweaking people's emotions for political gain is, is quite an interesting one. Um, but not one I can bring up because I'm not speaking. Uh, Linda, is there anything you'd like to? Yeah, it's on the, the, the emotional question. I mean, in, in Scotland, uh, the, the form of this emotion, emotion takes uh, by the SNP is the language of um, the victim. Um, uh, most of 
the attack on uh, uh, the Tories in, in, in Scotland by the SNP is um, prefaced with um, this right-wing Tory government um, attacking poor Scotland. Uh, poor, you know, we're all poor. You know, the working class here are poor. We're much poorer, um, and I think that that victim card has played quite a, a quite you know, quite a part of the difficulty is to actually argue with emotion, um, and I think that you know, the person out there who who asked about the working class supporting the SNP in the 2014 referendum, I, I do think that was the case. But we did find that um, in the Brexit election, it was actually working class areas that were voting Brexit. So uh, that in Scotland, and that demonstrates to me that the worm is turning and um, that people are, are kind of seeing through this victim card. Because on the one hand, she, she talks, and I'm talking about, we're really talking about the, the politics of persona here, aren't we? It's, it's all Nicola Sturgeon, she is the SNP. Um, but, but on the one hand, uh, Nicola Sturgeon talks with you know that victim language as poor uh, as poor Scots getting uh, shot on by the English these right wing English uh, Tories, and on the other hand, she stabs the working class in the back because with all her policies, named person smacking, um, you know, alcohol minimum price and alcohol. I mean, so it, I think there is definitely a kind of uh, a change there, and the the. Um, the, and it can be shown in the fact that the members, even though the membership of the SNP has gone up a lot and others may want to talk about that, it's a completely and utterly inactive membership and the support for independence has actually not moved. I mean, all the opinion polls say it is not, it's not going up since 2014. In fact, it's probably fallen a bit, so it's plateaued. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, Ruth, anything you'd like to pick up on? Yes, I would. I mean, all the comments were so interesting. I, I'd like to just say one general thing, though. Is Does anyone here think that devolution has succeeded? Because it's been hopeless in, in, in ways. Uh, Scotland, she just bangs the drum of nationalism all the time to hide the figures on health and education. Northern Ireland, I mean, a, a joke. I mean, what's happened there, Sinn Féin... Um, used to be wildly anti-EU. They voted down everything. They voted against the EU on everything for decades. They changed their view about five years ago when they decided to become progressive if they happened to be. And um, they changed their view on abortion. And now everybody who thought what they thought five or six years ago is, is a moron and a Neanderthal. And, the abu and they are in alliance now with the, the Alliance Party, which um, is also a, a working-class hating working class culture hating party. So they're very happy together laughing at the uncouth. It's Hillary Clinton and deplorables all over again. And it's utterly and absolutely sickening. Um, absolutely right that the SNP hates the Scots. And Tony Blair hated the English. I, <laughs> they were, you know, they didn't understand about food or anything cultural. Or um, I, was, I heard the Today programme this morning there was something in rugby and I don't give a damn about rugby but I discovered that apparently I was now supposed to be supporting South Africa against England. <laughs> Did any of you hear that? It was quite extraordinary because it was a key moment for South Africa. They had a black captain. It was as important when Mandela went out on the pitch. What? 
Because obviously, if anybody had piped up and said, excuse me, I, I'm, I'm English and I'm really rather excited for the World Cup, they would have been racist, <laughs> as we always were, I mean, as in, in my English moods. Um, you know, English nationalism is racist, yeah. xenophobic, everything bad. Uh, and I'm sick of this from nationalists, absolutely everything. They're toxic, they're awful, they've become something awful. And, you know, it wasn't that there weren't good nationalists once, but they're... Uh, they're not around in the main parties now. That's all I can say. Um, and really, the reason that they've all failed devolution is people don't want to take responsibility for all the nasty, difficult things. And it's wonderful that nationalism is a distraction. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, in, in Northern Ireland, it's reached. I mean, the two tribes in government hate each other. They can't even agree to be <coughs> splitting the power for the moment because, uh, because nationalism is driving so, yes, I agree with far too many people here, and I'm sure just the last. I'm used to being the one Brexiteer. A few months after the referendum, I was at a party where um, somebody I'd known for about 25 years, who was once an editor of mine on a book, we used to meet at a literary party or two every year, and it was just one of those, hello, lovely to see you, kiss, kiss, you know, everything went well, absolutely fine. So 22 years in, or thereabouts, he comes over to me at a party at the end of 2016, discovers I'm having a conversation with somebody, a very civilised conversation on why he had voted Remain and I had voted Leave. And he looks at me and says, I would rather spend the evening with a child molester. <laughs> now, I know he comes from Islington, but it's not... Really <laughs> <laughs> That's my last thought. Yeah, okay, well, just picking up from a few things. There have been so many points raised recently in that last round. Um, I mean, it does seem to me that there's um, a couple of factors which are in the background of this debate which um, don't, don't usually get talked about. So thanks to Ruth and for someone in the audience for, for mentioning them. The first is fear of English nationalism. I mean, I could said, you know, there's no great um, demand for English Parliament in, in um, for an English Parliament, and that's probably true. But bear in mind that, you know, Welsh devolution, uh, the 1997 vote, 25% um, or about a quarter of the Welsh population voted for devolution. From that point, Wales speaks as a nation, right? That gives Wales the right to ratchet up. That, um, that process and speak as one unified nation from that point on. So one quarter of the population in Wales. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know whether to judge whether devolution's been a success or a failure, but what I do know is that when it fails, that's always held to be a sign that we need more power, not less. Right? So you, know, you, can never, you can never fail in that sense. So the, the one thing is um, fear of English nationalism, because there are good nationalisms and bad nationalisms in this world, apparently. And the other thing is the lure of symmetry. Right? We love playing this kind of you know, fantasy football game and you know, a little jigsaw of nation-states and reworking them. Um, the world isn't symmetrical. It doesn't have to be symmetrical. So the idea, for instance, that you know, when Wales and Scotland gained devolution, and because we're terrified of English nationalism, so of course they can't have a parliament, you had to have 
regional assemblies. Right? No one wanted them, no one had been calling for them, but you had to have regional assemblies because that was local, it was good, it was responsive, it would deliver better government, and more to the point, it would be symmetrical. Right? Now, some of those areas, like the East Midlands, didn't even exist. Right? No one knows what the East Midlands is, or the people there don't know they live there. Right? They just live in the Midlands somewhere. Right? So there was never any demand for this, but it was the kind of lure of this... Uh, this, this kind of fearful symmetry, right? Uh, we have to get these, these jigsaw bits together in a way that makes sense for us at this committee at the top. So I'm, I'm, I'm wary of all of this, and I think we should just get used to the fact that the world is messy, and sometimes, you know, people demand nation, nationhood with, with such um, vehemence that they can't be ignored, other times they don't, right? The idea that you have to concede these things to, to create a kind of balanced um, to, to balance the weighing scales is nonsensical. Thank you. Vin, thanks so much. Just before I go out to the audience for a second round of questions, Meb, you wanted to come back on something Vin specifically said? Uh, Ruth, yeah. Um, oh, Ruth, you sorry. asked if uh, devolution is working. Uh, certainly in Scotland, I don't think it is. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did some polling on Holyrood, and the question was, uh, is Holyrood a talking shop or a change maker? And it was something like 76% said it was a talking shop. Okay, I'm going to come back out to the audience. Uh, right, so there was a chap there with the white shirt at the end. There's a microphone behind you. Um, I'm sorry I came in a little bit late, so I, I may have missed something that was said, but I, I wanted to pick up on something that um, Glyn Williams said. You said of Leila Moran's comment, um, oh, it's what we feel in our hearts, that was a nationalist sentiment. It seems to me, living in the bubble very much, uh, that it's a very anti, it's a cosmopolitan sentiment, what she feels in her heart is repulsion from the nation um, and repulsion from the British nation. And that's deep in, in Remainer um, sentiment and Remainer feeling. And listening to, to, to what you've been saying in the discussion, it's interesting that that seems to be actually true of Scottish nationalism. Repulsion from the nation is actually the, uh, the real nation, the cultural nation, you know, a bit of folk music and that, that's all great, and the dances, that's lovely. But the real nation uh, has to be... Uh, kind of avoided and repressed, if anything. So I, there's something there that, 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 that both, both the local and the supranational are driven by hostility to the nation, which creates a, a, a possibility, which is just emerging, interestingly, I thought, from the discussion, which is the, emotion, the emotional case we could make for Britain is that it, the British nation, nationhood is democracy. British sovereignty is democracy. It's anti-authoritarian. If you look for authoritarianism, look to the European Union, look to Scottish nationalism. The only exception I would make to that, just picking up on something that was just said, um, is I'm not sure that works for Northern Ireland. I'm not sure the same argument can work for Northern Ireland because whatever the Good Friday Agreement is, it's not democracy. It's institutionalised sectarianism. And I can't see any way to row back on the Good Friday Agreement. I think the game is up for Britain in Ireland, and, and that should just be recognised. Now, Irish nationalism, as you say, suffers from all the same problems. Irish nationalism is really toxic, I agree. And I feel very uncomfortable making the argument because of the people you find yourself agreeing with on Twitter or agreeing with you um, uh, when you say it. However, the beauty, I think, of it is that Irish unity is the best way to undermine cultural Irish nationalism. Uh, I think the uh, Irish people are going to find it very difficult to leave the European Union until they've sorted out their problem with Britain. 
Um, and, and if we want um, a, 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 the return of a, of a sovereign nationalism in Ireland, I think the, the same arguments don't apply to the union. Uh, I just wonder what you think about that. Thank you. There's a lady here with a stripy jumper. I actually find the comment that SNP hates Scottish is an emotional, unevidenced <laughs> argument, and I thought we were trying to raise the debate above that. I also think that devolution in Scotland has allowed free prescriptions and further education north of the border, which I think are valuable. I'm not a member of the Scottish National Party. I have come with an open mind to listen to debate, and I'm sorry to find that the quality of the debate has drifted a little into an emotional debate on the part of some of the panel. Okay, thank you for that. A number of speakers have talked about how uh, the Scottish people don't really want independence. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the SNP do want independence and the Scottish people keep returning the SNP into power. Now, how do we square that? Why, why do people who don't want independence keep voting for a party that quite clearly does? I mean, at best, it kind of shows a real kind of disregard for the union um, and doesn't really bode well for any kind of future arguments. Yes, that, I, I have that as well. I'll take the lady at the front here, and then I think that's it, because I think the hands have gone down. Hi, thanks. So I, I wouldn't say I've got any expertise on this, but particularly in the question of Scotland, because I spend a lot of time up there with family connections. Before the independence referendum, I found there were a lot of people who felt that the idea of an independent Scotland was something very positive, and it was a chance to kind of to, to reinvent the future of Scotland you know, to do things differently. And a lot of those people that, that I knew, you know, it's obviously self-selected because of my demographic, they also voted Remain. So, you know, in the European Union, whether they're right or wrong about the EU and the sovereignty that they would be allowed within the EU, I don't think it's acceptable to just say, well, they're just idiots and they don't understand that their real sovereignty, sovereignty would be delivered within the UK. Mm-hmm. So I just like to explore that idea of, you know, that, there was a real positive feeling you know, around the idea of Scottish independence combined with membership of the European Union. So why is that side of the story not being expressed here? Yeah. Right. I, I think those are three very challenging questions for the panel, actually. It begins to change the narrative that's coming out from the panel. Uh, some of the panellists are being too emotional about how they feel about nationalism. Uh, if, uh, if the Scots really don't want independence, why do they keep voting for the Scottish yeah. National Party? Uh, these, are, these are brilliant questions. So, uh, panellists, I'm going to come back to you in no particular order. I'm going to see who wants to speak first. Uh, we, we have the luxury of probably giving you a couple of minutes each, which is quite long for a, a, a battle of ideas debate, I can assure you. Um, so if you can think about the kind of message or thoughts you want to leave the audience with... Uh, and if, if at all you can cram in, I suppose, your quick uh, answer to the question, which is the session, which is what's the future for the union? Very big ask, I know. That would be great. Uh, this, these debates are about starting a discussion, not concluding it. So hopefully there'll just be lots of food for thought. So, Akash, you were looking at me very determinedly. I think you wanted to come back on something. Well, I'm just... <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Justin. Um, so it was actually in response to uh, the, the last couple of questions... Um, I think, yeah, I agree with the, 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 the gist of, of, of what you were just saying. Um, I, too, have found the, the suggestion that um, Scottish nationalism is, at, is somehow contradictory at heart. I'm not saying as a nationalist or someone who wants the union to break up, but the idea that it is contradictory 
to want to be an independent nation state within the EU, I think is is just odd. And, and I mean, Lynn was making the point earlier that um, you know the, the Scottish nationalist vision is is, is something like it to become a glory uh, glorified um, local council within the EU. Uh, does that suggest that Angela Merkel is a council leader within the EU or? Emmanuel Macron. I mean, <laughs> I think it, it, that, that there's a kind of slightly um, narrow understanding of sovereignty um, implicit in the way people are talking about this. And, you know, I think people voted for Brexit. Um, I didn't put my cards on the table, but I think it should be delivered, and I think there were arguments in favour of it. Um, but the idea that the 27 member states of the EU that will remain are local councils that are, just take all their laws from the EU is a, is a huge simplification and an exaggeration and it's perfectly legitimate for a small state like Scotland could become, if it were to become independent, to be a, uh, a part of the EU and uh, have national sovereignty at the same time. Um, I think um, that's, that's perfectly uh, workable for many countries in the EU and, and it would be for Scotland. Um, and future, I think just future of the union. Future of the union. Well, okay. So that links to why do people keep voting for the SNP, and is there support for uh, for, for independence? Um, Linda, you you said a couple of times that it's that it's declined. I mean, it's the, the polls suggest it's very close actually, and over the past year it looks like it's tightened up. So I think I mean John Curtis, polling guru, known known friend of nationalists has suggested that there has been a, a bit of a, a sea change and remain voters, uh, a, sig a decent number of them have been switching to uh, support for independence. So I think if there were to be another NDF, it would be very tight. I wouldn't put uh, money on a prediction either way, but um, I mean, I think, I think it's certainly a plausible scenario that uh, the union is, is, is dissolved over the next uh, five to ten years. Right, Kat, thank you very much. Linda, you look like you're itching to come back on something else. Uh, yeah, just on the, the John Carter's thing, he said the other day, actually, that um, for, for um, the SNP to, to get independence would be formidable because the, the actual percentage has not gone up. Um, so... I mean, not that I'd say that John Curtis is always right, but he's quite often right on these things because he's, he's looked at all the polls. And uh, the, the actual support for independence in Scotland uh, has not grown in the way you might expect it to, uh, given the, the predominance or the profile of the SNP. Um, and, uh, OK, it remains to be seen if, uh, if she gets to call a, a, a referendum. Uh, we will see. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon talks about calling a referendum every day, but she never actually does it. Um, if she really wanted to do it, she would go to, to the government and say, I want it, I want it, but she, she uses it as a, a kind of a stick to beat uh, the Tories with rather than actually do everything uh, to actually to get it on the table because she knows that if she actually calls it... Uh, and, and she loses, it's the end of the SNP. Um, so I think it's quite important to bear that in mind. Um, Nicola Sturgeon herself said in 2017 that she would rather not, her party wasn't called a nationalist party. You know, she, it, it, you know, she said she admits she wished she could change her party's name. 
uh, because of the hugely, hugely problematic connotations um, with the word nationalism. And I think that's um, I think that's quite important um, to, to think about in terms of what it is the SN, what it is the SNP actually want, um, and that is why. Uh, and I think the comparison with Brexit is really, really quite powerful because she wants a place at the EU table. She doesn't want independence. Um, she wants independence from us <laughs> because that's what the Brexit vote was about. The Brexit vote was a recognition by. Uh, the UK, and a lot of Scottish voters as well, one million of them, um, that our uh, leaders were not accountable to us. They were only accountable within the cabal of the EU. Um, and it meant they could escape all their their accountability to, to the, 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 the British people gave them through the ballot box um, in the EU. And that's why they don't want to leave, actually. That's why we live in a country where the, the entire political establishment, I, I promise you, does not want to leave the EU because it allows their insulation from the, the, the population. And that is exactly what's happening in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon wants some of that because she wants to be insulated from um, pressure from us. I have shown, I tried to show, and the lady over here said that she felt that it got a bit negative, but I did try to show that some of the, the SNP's policies were really quite distant from ordinary people and distant from grassroots opinion and all you know the campaigns that people had set up against um, name person against uh, al you know, against the football offences against all these other things but loudly roundly ignored by the SNP so that's why I was saying that uh, you know they're trying to insulate themselves from uh, ordinary people and what ordinary people want so they, they don't actually. Uh, represent all of Scotland. Um, so, okay. yeah, that's it. Uh, any uh, um, uh, pump on the future of the union? Uh, the person out there who said it's about democracy, I think that that is that is what the, uh, the union is synonymous with the idea of democracy, um, uh, demos and crassy. I think that's a good way to begin to punt what we're about, what the union should be about. It's synonymous with that kind of living, breathing organism of uh, the kind of supreme power of the, the, the demos. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ruth, would you like to come back on any final points? Well, I'm, I'm, da I'm dazed, really, by the quality of the interventions. In those, <laughs> I would love to have conversations on about 35 of the points made. But I'll just make a few points, because you'll be showing me the red card in about 20 seconds, the way the clock's going. Um, I think Scottish nationalism was poisoned by Irish nationalism. Irish immigration from Ireland, nationalists, Irish nationalists. I really, truly do. I think that's been very unfortunate. And it's, uh, it's a reason that the Scots have forgotten their extraordinarily powerful role in the United Kingdom and all they achieved. And they've been, they're being taught to be ashamed of the past, really. That's unfortunate, as the English have been told to be ashamed of their past. Um, so that's my feeling about the Scots. Um, Ireland, very interesting. I go back to the Republic of Ireland sometimes, and uh, there's a sense in audiences in some places that, and it bears, an, I mean, it's, it, it touches on what some people are saying. Um, oh, no, you know, it would be a terrible thought not to have the European Union because they tell us what to do in all sorts of areas where they're much better at it than we are. There is really a kind of um, um, cringing aspect to it. Um, I wonder what would happen in the Republic of Ireland, which at the moment I think is 9% in favour of um, Irexit. 
if the day that corporation tax harmonization really becomes uh, a threat. Because at the moment, and you raise this with the Irish and you say your absolute prosperity is dependent on the low, the low rate of corporation tax. And they say, that's okay, that can't be changed, we've got a veto. Well, we know enough about the treatment of small nations in the EU to know what that's worth. And the same thing, how, how are they going to feel about a, Euro, a European army after all those years staying out of NATO? So I think they've got some very rough years ahead. Which leads me just to say um, that the, I think the EU is past it. I think it could disappear tomorrow like the Soviet Union did, because I think it's now hollow at the centre. And why is nobody talking about Catalonia? Why is nobody talking about the way the Spaniards are treating Catalonia? I mean, and, and the lack of any intervention, really, from the EU centre... I mean, what is lying ahead for the EU? Greece is in ruins. The immigration problems in Italy are horrendous. I mean, I could, I could, we could all write essays on all the problems facing the Brussels, which is not an impressive group of problem solvers. And that's the end. My last thought is, as I said earlier, I think we need a root and branch look at the United Kingdom, as our friend down there was talking about, and as um, ACASH was, it's absolutely vital, but it'll take years. But it's, we have to grasp that particular thing. Okay, I'm going to jump to Glyn. Glyn, very unfairly, I'm going to have to ask you to be super safe. I'll try to be, yeah, yeah. Okay, first of all, uh, the, my little quip about local government, yeah, a, a bit of poetic license. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, wasn't intended literally. I was trying to make the point that any unit, any geographical unit, could succeed. If, if, you, if you scale down your ambitions and what you mean by sovereignty... You, of course, it can be done. Um, most of the questions related to Scotland, I'll try and translate a little bit to Wales. The question, why do people vote for the SNP or Plaid Cymru? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? After the Brexit vote, I mean, there's been a whole industry devoted to telling us what people really meant by their vote. <laughs> why did they vote? What did they really want? Didn't, why didn't they understand? When people vote for Plaid Cymru, we're expected to believe... They voted Plaid Cymru because they want independence. It's not as simple as that. And as I try to point out, I think you know it's, it's due to the failure of, of, of Westminster and Cardiff. Now, I just want to say that Wales is an exception in some way, in some ways to most of these nationalist things. The successionist movements are usually from rich regions. You think of you know, Catalonia, um, north of Italy, you know, uh, Flanders. Wales is a relatively poor country, but I wouldn't, don't kid yourself that the, the filthy lucre doesn't come into it. It doesn't take long when you're talking to a nationalist before, you know, the Welsh will tell you, uh, oh, yeah, but we've got all the water. You think, well, what sort of a bloody argument is that, that, you know, within two sentences you're threatening to thirst them to death. <laughs> so, and, and the same with, you know, with, 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 with Scotland. There was a report recently saying that Scotland owns something like two, a third of the UK's natural resources in oil and gas and forestry or whatever. Right, um, you know, it, it's a dirty argument. What's the future for the UK? I think just more of the same. More confusion, more argument, more messiness until we learn to the lesson that the gentleman um, halfway up mentioned earlier on that what divides us. Isn't you know? Isn't ethnicity or which side of a pretend boundary you live on? It's class and ideology. Thank you very much. Uh, finally, uh, Bev, the lovely volunteers at the back are about to beat me up if I run over too much. So, uh, just your very succinct final point. Uh, 
I'll focus on why the Scotland vote SNP. Uh, earlier I mentioned that I did a poll um, looking at the impact on Scottish Labour of the Iraq War, and one of the figures that stood out was 47% of SNP voters are less likely to vote uh, Labour because of the Iraq War. Um, the Iraq War basically did a lot of damage to the uh, Scottish Labour Party, uh, and they all went to the SNP, basically. Um, it's as simple as that. Most uh, traditional Labour voters uh, are not going to vote Tory. Uh, they're not going to vote Lib Dem. Uh, the SNP was the natural home once it had made that decision to drift away, and that was done over a period of years, um, but, you know, between 2003 and, and really 2007, uh, when they uh, won the first uh, Scottish parliamentary election. Uh, beyond that, obviously in the first-past-the-post system, you've got a big problem that there's three unionist parties, or three main unionist parties, and one nationalist party. So in the first-past-the-post system, they've got the advantage. Um, that's mitigated to an extent to the Scottish parliamentary election system, uh, which is designed to make it hard to get a majority. Um, but they broke that system in 2011 when they won the landslide and, and an actual majority. So for a lot of Scots, um, there really is uh, a gap in the market uh, for a, a new party, a new unionist party. Uh, most Scots will not. I mean, and again, when you you know when you listen to Nicola Sturgeon, it's not a budget; it's a Tory budget. You know, she she creates division in society. Um, one of the arguments I often used to counter that point is, you know, if you're standing in a queue and, uh, for something, whatever, um, and you overhear somebody from London or Cardiff or Belfast, do you have a conversation with them? And yeah, most people do. Uh, but Nicholas Sargent always focuses on the Tory government in Westminster. So she's creating that division in society. She's portraying it as something bad. Whereas at a personal level, most people don't see the English or the Welsh or the uh, Irish as something bad. So, you know, she's quite effective in, in creating that division. Uh, and, and again, you know, to extend the argument, you know, if you're in the queue and you hear a German accent or an Italian accent, or do you strike up a conversation with them? It's, who, it's not so much sovereignty, it's more who do you identify with? And Nicholas Stern is very good at, you know, capitalising on those, those kind of arguments. Um, and again, it comes back to we've got to find ways of countering those arguments in terms of who you identify with. Uh, mini sentence, uh, future union? As I said at the start, I'm very concerned about the future of the union. Um, I see the SNP as a very formidable, uh, formidable campaign organisation. Uh, they focus on emotional arguments, not technical arguments. If you did, if we were able to shift over to technical arguments, particularly in finances, Scotland gets something like £8,000 per head more for a family of four, rather. Uh, in public expenditure than in the rest of the UK. If I was English, I'd be pretty hacked off for that. You know, again, if I was in the London Assembly, looking at the deal Scottish Parliament gets in comparison to London, a major global city, Holyrood has got way more powers than the London Assembly. I'd be pretty hacked off for that. Okay. Thank you, Mev. Um, can we thank our speakers, please? You can find out more about the festival by heading to our website at thebattleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to our newsletter by following the link below this recording.